Welcome to Nostalgia Marcana. I'm your host, Doug Leaf. Each episode of this podcast, we will look back on the pop cultural ephemera that remains in our cultural zeitgeist today and try to understand why we remain enchanted all these years later. This week, we will be revisiting... The moment I fell into the fissure that the book would not be destroyed as I had planned, it continued falling into that starry expanse of which I had only a fleeting glimpse. I've tried to speculate where it might have landed. I must admit, however, such conjecture is futile. Still, questions about whose hands might one day hold my mistbook are unsettling to me. I know my apprehensions might never be allayed. And so I close, realizing that perhaps the ending has not yet yet been written. The last video game we talked about on this show was Street Fighter 2, which is kinetic, it's frenetic, and in almost every way the polar opposite of what we're going to be talking about today which is 1993's Myst. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of a game that is all about the feeling of being lost and isolated in a strange, fantastical alien world, and combined with the puzzle equivalent of having to figure out how to set an alien's VCR. And uh, so I am really excited to talk about this one, and I have with me a guest who uh, probably knows more about Myst and the Myst series than I've, uh, than I've forgotten. Uh, I have that backwards. He's forgotten more about this series than I've ever known. <laughs> no, that's still backwards. We're, we're off and running to a good start. Uh, but let me introduce my guest because he's uh, uh, one of the best podcasters I know and one of the nicest people on the internet. You can find his work at duckfeed.tv where he is the host of uh, a myriad of shows that are all worth listening to, Abject Suffering, Bonfire Side Chat, and many more, uh, and most notably their flagship show, Watch Out for Fireballs, which even covered this game in its second episode, uh, as well as its series, Riven, colon, the sequel to Mist. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the pride of Cincinnati, Ohio, Cole Ross. Thank you very much, Doug. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I said it in the green room, but I am always down to talk, to talk about Mist. Uh, the more... Yeah, and I love... Good. Go ahead. I, was, I want to know why. Oh, I, I mean, I just this is something that I that, that I found very early and I've I've taken pretty deep dives into it in terms of like I have read the novels and stuff like that, which are actually pretty OK. Uh, young adult novel kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, this is just uh, this is just something that I go way back on. Now, how did you first encounter it? So I think that maybe I first saw it like at like a circuit city or maybe at a library on some of the machines. We definitely didn't have a PC that could run it at the time uh, around the time that it came out. Uh, but I was just kind of fascinated with it, obviously, because of the graphics, uh, you know, like it was this very it was it was a it was a showpiece for computers that could that had cd-rom drives right you look at it now and you recognize that this is basically a slideshow with some really chunky pre-rendered kind of uh kind of imagery there but at the time 
the presentation with the graphics and the you know the the sound uh kind of combining to make this really oppressive isolating atmosphere was something that you really didn't hadn't seen i didn't know that as a probably oh gosh came out in 93 six or seven year old kid but it kind of uh felt pretty special and i i, I kind of always knew that i wanted to give it a shot and was unable to i remember when we got a new computer we were searching for games uh to pick up and i grabbed mist off of the off of the shelf and i, I remember my brother my older brother uh he knew enough about it to say oh you can beat that in the first like five minutes we're not spending money on that uh making reference to the fact that the entire game everything that you go through is uh kind of a a long circuitous route to find the right code in one of the books to input and then get to the ending um and so i was denied that and didn't really get to play it until my cousin got it on his sega saturn which i have to tell you doug is not the preferred way to play mist <laughs> your kid uh no not a second Saturn. Yeah. as hard as that is to believe i just i remember uh trying to read these um um these the, the you know the game is full of these journals that are left behind by the key characters with all these details that are beautiful you know in-game objects they have you know flowing script in the writing and they have these awesome uh these awesome uh, like diagrams and stuff that are crucial to understanding what you're going to need to do uh they're low res even on the pc but they had to be they had to be down resed even further uh for the uh, for the saturn for basically all of the um all of the uh oh gosh console versions just because televisions had a lower resolution so you were looking at it and you couldn't discern anything uh because everything was so compressed and blurry <laughs> so you couldn't actually read the clues to solve the puzzle yeah yeah i had to use uh i've actually i've got i've got this here I, i've got the uh the strategy guide for it which itself <laughs> uh the strategy guide for the original mist and the strategy guide for riven they are written in the style of a uh, of a journal uh, it's like a it's like a first person past uh, kind of deal, you know. I returned to the Y branch in the peninsula. I took the left fork this time, so it's written out kind of exactly like that. So I had to like refer to this to figure out what was going on with it, while frustratingly using the D pad to move the mouse cursor around to interact with everything, which. Honestly, I was used to because before I picked up Mist, I was really into Maniac Mansion on the NES. So it wasn't that big of a drag moving a cursor around with a D-pad, but it was still, again, not as ideal as using a mouse. I think that's one of the things Like when you're a kid and you're really into a game and there's all of these obstacles to playing it in front of you. If you're really invested in like, I want to figure out what's going on, I want to solve these puzzles... That stuff all gets shoved to the side in a way that, like, as an adult, if I was doing capture that, I'd be like, "Nah, I don't, I don't need this edit. I'll watch it on YouTube. I'll, I'll find some other way." Obviously, this game doesn't want me to play it. Right? Yeah, all those frustrations. I encountered the game. Uh, so I had a, a friend growing up. I always considered this to be more of a Macintosh game because it was developed on Macs and, and released there first, even though it came out for PC shortly thereafter. And uh, we were a PC house, and my friend Miles, growing up, they were early adopters. And they always had, like, the top-of-the-line, fastest, most powerful Macintosh you could imagine. Uh, so he had this at his house. And so my memories of it are going over there, playing the game in these sort of limited passes. So I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't playing the game from start to finish, but he would be like, oh, I found my way to the Channelwood age. Let me show you all these puzzles and things I found there. 
And so those were my memories of playing Myst. I don't think I actually bought uh, one of those titles until I think I bought Myst 3 and 4 when those came along. Uh, the other, the first two I played at his house. At the time, I was more, uh, since I had a PC, I was more invested in his cousin, sort of cousin, the seventh guest. Yeah. Uh, which was also a, a, a game where you moved through a three-dimensional environment solving puzzles, although the way that game presents its puzzles is obviously very, very different from Myst, where in The Seventh Guest, you walk into a room and in this haunted house, and there's a, a bunch of playing cards on a table <laughs> in a formation, and it's, you know, go flip these cards over in the right order. And you go, okay, I did it. I solved a puzzle. And in Myst, it's, it, it's the inverse of that. All of the puzzles... Are essentially, it's a lot of code breaking, and like you, you come across a panel where you can put in a, a number from zero to nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, and then you spend a long time wandering around trying to figure out well, what's the number I'm supposed to put into this panel. I'm gonna go read a book. I'm gonna go flip some other switches. Everything is integrated into these like level-wide machines that it's it makes you feel like you're an archaeologist trying to solve these puzzles as opposed to like being presented with a just straight up standalone. Here is a puzzle. Go solve. Yeah, that's something that's really wonderful about it. And it was really kicked into overdrive in Riven, uh, the second one. Uh, but even in uh, the, the you know the first game, that integration between the puzzle and the world and kind of this you know, in the intro, you, you, you refer to it as learning to program in Aliens VCR. Uh, but the way that uh, everything is real mechanical, right? Um, and you know, especially in the mechanical age. But with all of them, you know, you, you're kind of trying to envision the physicality of the world and figure out what's hooked up to what. So that, you know, you, you know, will find the lever or this panel of machines, and then this could affect something somewhere else. And it's really hinging on you uh, noticing things. And, you know, back in that episode where we talked about mist, uh, got more than probably 11 years ago. I kind of laid out like, oh, this is a game that's about like the primary mechanic is paying attention. You know, like there's a certain rigor and, you know, I can definitely attribute my love for taking notes while I play uh, to playing the original Mist. You know, because even to get to some of these ages, some of these worlds, you know, you mentioned Channelwood, you know, or the Selenetic or any of those uh, kind of ages that are off the core hub world of Mist, you have to you know, take note of symbols, you have to make references in books, you have to take all of that back and actually like, enter the code in the library in order to even unlock the thing that will get you in there to the self contained world with all of its puzzles connected. Yeah, I, I decided to play a little of it last night, just to kind of immerse myself back in in playing Mist, And almost immediately, it was I pulled out a piece of paper, and I was like, I got to take note of this, because I'm trying to remember here's here's this thing that shows you there's some dates that you got to write down, which you put into a machine that shows you constellations, which then correspond to a book where it tells you what the constellations are. And then you push some buttons with that, those particular constellations on them. And that opens the gates to, uh, in that case, I think the um, stone ship age. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was no way I would be able to do that <laughs> without having it written down in front of me. Um, it, it was, it, it brought me right back to being uh, 13 and playing this game, and I, I had played a few games like this before where you had to take notes. There were um, a lot of point-and-click adventure games that had kind of labyrinth elements to them, mm -hmm. and you would ha end up taking a piece of graph paper and drawing out. Uh, the one that comes to mind is that in, in uh, Legend of Corandia, 
Uh, there's this cave you have to go through that is brutal. And uh, you, uh, and without actually mapping out where exactly everything is screen by screen, you will fail. Mm-hmm. And that feeling as a kid of, of solving these kinds of puzzles, Mist felt like a leap forward in terms of that because it was the entire game was that. But also, this was the first kind of point-and-click adventure game to make you feel like you were the the person going through this, as opposed to say, I've got my little pixelated guybrush threepwood, and I'm going to tell him, you know, pick up mug, <laughs> give mug to so and so. Those that was what point-and-click adventure games to me were prior to playing something like Mist. Um, it really just was revolutionary. I guess this is probably a good time to explain for the audience who doesn't know what Mist is. Uh, at its core, probably to lay out some of the fundamentals so so they can play along. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so kind of the concept is, you know, narrative setup. You're playing as a person who's only identified as the stranger. You know, it's meant to be this audience cipher. You are you in this. Um, and you're just going through a library and you find this book with a strange animated panel that when you touch it, it takes you to mist you know, this island with all these strange mechanisms and things like that. Um, and you quickly learn that you're dropped into the middle of this mystery. The architect of this island and the person who has created these books, these linking books that uh, will take you to these worlds that he has constructed. His name is Atrus. He has been um, uh, locked away. You find a distress message from him uh, uh, trying to reach out to his wife, Catherine, but uh, she is nowhere to be found. Uh, we're going, you, you'll learn about her in the second one in, in Riven. But it has something to do with his two treacherous sons, the uh, kind of Machiavellian, uh, uh, you know, fancy boy, Cirrus. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's very hedonistic, uh, almost animalistic, sadistic. How many more icks can I throw in there? Um, his, uh, his, his other son, uh, Akinar. And you find these books where they have been trapped, these prison books, the, 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 the red book with, uh, with Sirius and the blue book with Akinar. And they're making kind of these entreaties to you to find, to bring them the properly colored pages from the books in these different worlds. Thank you for bringing me back. You must continue. My name is Sirius. I beg you to remain. You must remain. So you are uh, going around Mist and finding ways to open up the linking books to these other ages and solving the puzzles there so you can get the red and blue pages uh, to put in uh, to uh, those books uh, so that their message will become clearer and they can give you kind of their case for which one you should you should choose. Uh, but freeing either of them is a bad bet because you will be trapped and they will burn the linking book, trapping you in their ages. Uh, what you want to do is actually use the information you have found in these multiple different worlds to 
figure out where Atris is uh, is is trapped, uh, and this requires uh, you know doing a little bit more sleuthing while you're in these worlds, uh, solving additional puzzles, and you know paying a little bit more attention to the journals to you know figure out that he is ultimately hidden in the uh, kind of home age for his people, the the uh, the Denis, and all the while you are doing this thing that actually gets around some of the adventure game problems uh, that are common criticisms of the genre, which is the Denis and Atris themselves, they are creators. They're writing these books that are linking to these worlds that already exist, but, you know, by describing them so, you know, so in such a detailed fashion, you connect directly to that out there in the multiverse, you know, in the, in the expanse kind of thing. Because all of these places are contrived by these people, these, you know, book writers uh, and their machinations and their strange ways, it gets around the problem of, well, this puzzle doesn't make any sense. Because when you're Guybrush Threepwood walking around these Caribbean villages solving problems with um, uh, uh, these rubber chickens with pulleys in the middle, that's ridiculous because you're in a realistic world doing unrealistic things. In Mist, you are in an unrealistic world doing unrealistic things that still match the rules that were laid out by the person who crafted it in game Atris and then, you know, by extension, you know, to the point where Atris is played by one of the creators, Rand Miller, you know, the people who actually made the game for you. So they like figured out a really cool way to fit in these esoteric puzzles that you're describing, finding dates and, you know, setting water pressure in different things, directing, uh, you know, directing this energy, uh, you know, to have all of these strange things feel like they're of a piece with it. Right. And I think that is a huge, a huge part of it. And the mystery of the Denis and this art of crafting these linking books and describing these worlds uh, is, you know, something that the series is increasingly uh, interested in as it, uh, you know, presses forward uh, with each additional uh, entry, you know, all the way up through the failed MMO, uh, Uru, uh, the books, um, and uh, ultimately ending in um, Mist 5, End of Ages. Yeah. You've, touched on something which i think is a really cool meta concept which is that the books or rather the the, the games are about this concept of an author creating something uh, for you to go wander around in um which is literally what's happening with programmers coding the game and when with, within the world of the game you have these semi-godlike figures authoring these worlds that you then get to go explore and you're right from from a narrative perspective perspective it helps explain you know, why would anyone set up their, you know, ship to operate like this? This <laughs> seems really counterintuitive. Why would anyone have to go through all of these steps just to travel from here to there? Um, but there's this sense of like, you know, this is set up to be circuitous because you're not supposed to find the red and blue pages. No. You don't want to because they're both evil, yeah. uh, which is a great twist. You know, you go through all this trouble to release one of them and you get screwed, The you know, the ending of getting screwed and trapped yourself and you go, all right, well, I guess I was supposed to it wasn't the red pages. I better go get all the blue pages. And then the same thing happens. And as you're doing it, we should mention, so when you when you open up one of these books to talk to Cirrus or Akinar, it's a lot of just static. And the message comes through. It's really hard to make out even what they're saying at first. And the more pages you give them, the clearer the message becomes and the more it's easy to understand them. And then as you do that, you, you, you immediately get a sense of like, I don't know if I should be listening to this person. He does not seem trustworthy at all. Everything in the game is screaming at you, like, don't trust these two dudes. Uh, and it, it's a great kind of, like, it's a puzzle in itself to figure out, like, no, 
there's a door number three <laughs> that you're supposed to go through to free Atris. And even then, there's a slight secondary puzzle because you need to have a special page to allow him to be free. If you go into his world without that page, you're both trapped in there forever. <laughs> He's so angry with you when it happens. <laughs> ah, my friend. Ah, you've returned. We meet face to face. And the page, did you bring the page? You didn't bring the page. You didn't bring the page. What kind of fool are you? Oh. Did you not take my warning seriously? Welcome to Duddy. You and I will live here. Forever. Yeah, and as you said, Atris is played by uh, Rand Miller, one of the two leads, uh, lead creators, along with his brother, Robin. And uh, you really especially get that sense from, the, especially the first game, that, you know, you, you can feel this was like made in a garage by people that really just, you know, loved doing this, uh, that were you know encha enchanted with this idea of making a game and, and doing puzzles in a way that, that nobody had really done them before. Yeah, uh, like l looking up, like even uh, just uh, like photos of their studio at the time and then ultimately where they, where they the, their company Cyan, you know, ultimately moved. It's, you know, it, it's a, this real fun, plucky story about this small creator that somehow managed, you know, the small group of creators that somehow managed to make the best-selling PC game up until 2000 when The Sims came out. Yeah. Yeah, this thing sold six million copies or something. It was released on everything that could, the, any hardware that could run it. Yeah. They put it on. It, and it speaks to a lot that this game is, I think, really accessible. Uh, because you can't die in the game. It requires no reflexes. You don't even have an inventory. It's literally just, you know, if you can operate Google Maps or Street View, <laughs> that's what it's like. You're clicking from node to node, exploring these worlds, looking at books, and just observing and thinking. And the most it kind of asks of you mechanically is to notice things in the environment like, oh, there's a switch over here. Oh, there's a gear I can turn. That made the game very, very accessible to folks who would not be comfortable um, asking Mega Man to jump all over the place and, and traverse some uh, uh, platforming challenge. It made the game accessible to everybody. I think that's a good reason this and uh, the seventh guest, which was released pretty close to it, were people could easily pick up a puzzle and play it and had fun exploring these 3D worlds because that was new as well. This was the year Jurassic Park came out. Um, this is a year that CG was starting to really come into its own as a thing. Uh, and I watched an interview with uh, the Millers, and they were talking about the development, and someone was asking them before it came out, like, is this going to be as good as The Seventh Guest? Because it, it hadn't come out yet, but like uh, people in the industry were starting to see, like, oh, man, somebody's moving through a 3D environment and doing stuff. And they were like, yes, you know, we're going <laughs> to call our shot. We're, we're going we're, we're gonna to be just as good. And, and uh, yeah, those two games, uh, and especially this one, which I think left a much larger footprint for reasons we can talk about, changed so much about the way games were made, games were marketed, uh, and, and the, I think did a lot to kind of push, at least certainly for myself, 
the way I think about problem solving. Yeah, it's frustrating to, you know, remember at the time, but also even to like go back and look uh, at, uh, you, you know, kind of contemporary games press, the way that they talked about it, it was really dismissed quite a bit because of what you're describing that it didn't have kind of the mechanical, you know, rigor that was demanded, you know, by primarily arcade and console games, you know, and even, you know, 1993, you know, Doom had come out, but uh, we also had, you know, Wolfenstein, uh, you know, just uh, those are games that the difficulty lived in the hands, right? It was, it was reflexes and stuff like that. And that was what games had been. And then along comes Mist, which is somehow even less ri- rigorous in quotes than, you know, these dungeon crawl RPGs that had been, you know, popular forever on, um, on, on PCs and stuff. Right. And it was just kind of written off as a little bit of this curiosity or as al- almost like it, its popularity was taking away from quote unquote real game kind of, you know, kind of deals. And I'm really happy that that history has been revisited, you know, and now, you know, here in 2022, we're at this point, you know, nearly 30 years later where there isn't, there isn't an awful lot of kind of dismissal of a game that is both as accessible as this, but also, um, you know, that, uh, you know, requires a different set of muscles, right? And the, you know, the difficulty doesn't live in the hands, it lives in the head and in paying attention and making notes and observing, the you know, observing the world, you know? So that is, that has been fun to see kind of that vindication where like, yes, this is, this is, this is a real game and understand how limited the scope of people's concepts of games, you know, was, you know, that, you know, back then, right? Yeah. And I also think, you know, again, in terms of like, at least my development of like as as a thinking person who has to solve problems in his life, uh, you know, I, I grew up to be a lawyer, and my interests as a kid were writing, performing, and solving puzzles. And my current vocation is the intersection of those three things. And I and I've had other lawyers tell me, you know, you look at things a different way, you you problem solve in a different way. And I have to credit things like Mist for that. You know, and, and similar games that kind of push problem solving to in a way that's about uh, lateral thinking and mm-hmm. thinking broader, making connections that you that are not necessarily obvious, and paying attention to details as well. These games, are, as you you talked about, you know, being observant. Like I can think of you know one of the major puzzles in Riven involves listening to animal sounds in the environment and then having those correspond to things it would take a long time for somebody to play that game and realize that was what was being asked of you. Otherwise you're just walking around and you're just hearing animal noises and you think, Oh, that's just part of the environmental, you know, pastiche. That's just, that's just here, right? Mm-hmm. This is just a wallpaper for me to enjoy. No, the game is actually telling you, you know, you should notice this because that sound is ultimately going to be used for a code later you know, to, to advance the game state in some way. And, and going back to even the original Mist, you know, I get, it's so much about like, you know, I, I, when I started the game up, I go into that first room that's right off the docks and there's that little like hologram thing and I pushed a button and nothing happened. I was like, God, I played this game before. I should remember what this <laughs> is. And you turn, you turn around and if you happen to notice there's a little piece of paper on the wall with like some codes on it, you'll put in these numbers. I'm like, okay, great. But then I couldn't remember like, oh, right. If you go behind, if you look behind the piece of paper, you open the panel and that's where you punch in the numbers 
but you have to be looking for it. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, you, you, you have to think in a way that's, you know, oh, this isn't just, you know, the, the pretty background I'm here to look at. Things in here are interactable. It's built on a platform called HyperCard, which was a big Macintosh thing. Did you ever fool around with HyperCard at all? No, I was also a PC kid. Um, uh, pretty much. I, I got my first Mac when I left for college, like in 2007. So HyperCard was not exactly dead and buried at the time, uh, but uh, well on its way. Uh, as they were uh, kind of making their shift to other stuff. So no, I never got to mess around with HyperCard, but I really respect it as this simple and accessible way to, you know, to program simple experiences like this. Uh, even though Myst and, you know, pr- prior to this, they discovered that they could make a game with their previous game, uh, The Manhole, which is more of a kid's, like, interactive, you know, world kind of deal. Um, uh, they're really stretching the definition of what, of what those hyper cards are and could be like, mostly it was for like very simple stuff. Right. Yeah. They really push this to its limits in terms of what you could do with it, because it is essentially like you create a, 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 an image that's your card and you create a series of those. And within those, you can place buttons that would either be visible or invisible, in this, in the case of Mist, invisible, right? There's a button on this door that you don't see. If you push that, click it with your mouse, it then takes you to the next card in the stack, which is, you know, inside of the door. And, you know, with combining thousands and thousands of these, they're able to create the illusion that is the game of Mist. My my friend Miles and I decided we would try and create one of these ourselves. I think we made five or six cards <laughs> before figuring out this was way beyond our abilities as as 13-year-olds to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's an impressive, th- it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if someone makes a, a, a facsimile of the Eiffel Tower using only elbow macaroni mm-hmm. and you kind of go like, well, the fact that you did that, look at what you did using only elbow macaroni. <laughs> that's incredible. It, it's kind of the same thing here where it's like this program, you know, was never meant to do something this extravagant. The fact that they pulled it off as well as they did is, is really something. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's kind of a long running tradition as well. You know, how many games were made in basic uh, or how, uh, you know, I don't know if, if if you're like me, but when I was coming up in in high school, we had like graphing calculators, right? Of TI-83. And, you know, the way that games would be passed around, you know, the one person who had the cable to put, you know, to put those on the on the graphing calculator and then spread them across, you know, you could go in there. That was just programmed, you know, often by hand by people just kind of tapping, you know, tapping in it just, uh, the way that people find ways to make games with stuff that very much was not intended to, to, to do that is always, is always really fascinating. Yeah. We played around when I was very young, there was this thing called logo yes. on Atari. Got that little turtle. Which, <laughs> yep. The little turtle, you would like train it to, you tell it to like basically draw lines, like a virtual etch-a-sketch sort of, uh, and you would try and make things out of that. I definitely f- fooled around with basic a little bit, learned how to program like a very basic program. I think it just made the screen change colors or something. V- very limited stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so it was never coding and it was never something that I was that interested in or, or could do very well. But you could always tell like, yeah, there was almost a game in and of itself of like, how do I use this device or this software to do something interesting that it was never intended to do? It basically break the system. And uh, I, I think Mist is sort of like the the greatest example of someone doing that mm-hmm. um, to to the most extreme end. Um, 
But beyond the technical side, I think just the emotional side of the game is really interesting. The 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 fact that the the story, other than these handful of times where you are listening to Cirrus or Akinar you know, yell at you from behind a, a little postage stamp size screen, everything else in the game is just this is about a feeling you get. You know, you look around these environments, which are they're, I don't want to say they're decimated, but they're empty. They're, you know, there's no people living there anymore. The, you know, there's it's just this, it's just you and this series of like hallways and platforms and rooms that you get to explore, and by doing that, learn about the people that were there and what happened to them. Uh, that was something that was fairly new for games at that time. Yeah, just this uh, confidence in building, you know, just a, a, I forget if it was the Millers themselves or if it was reviewers at the time, but the word that is used to describe Mist and what it achieved is a beautiful void, right? Um, you know, which which has always felt apt and is one of the big things that is kind of carried, carried forward from it. But, you know, this was a thing that really spoke to me uh, in terms of, you know, uh, oh gosh, like an inductive storytelling versus deductive, you know, or like, you know, deductive being the game directly provides you with facts, you know, tells you the story and then leaves you to assemble the logic as it, as it goes versus inductive story, which is, you know, storytelling through the environment. Right. So the, 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 the major one, like the big thing that sticks out is the channel would, uh, the channel would age, which, uh, you know, as you're reading about these different ages uh, in the library, before you go to them, channel wood is described as this, you know, verdant place. It's, you know, it's a forest on an Island where people, you know, relatively primitive people had lived and Atris saw it as kind of his, you know, his role. We, we can put aside, bad you know actually no we can't put aside bad colonial uh things on this because it's exactly what happens uh but you know they go there and he builds all this technology to help make their lives easier and observe them and learn from them and then his shitty sons come and you discover you know by going to their individual um to their individual rooms uh you know that they had uh horribly abused these people ultimately to the point of killing them Right, you find the torture implements uh, in uh, in in their uh, in their living quarters. And, you know, you find uh, their particular writings. You find the you know the 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 riches that they stole from them. Right, this is not actually you know spelled out to you by a narrator. This is not spelled out to you by characters you know speaking directly. You can just kind of kind of tell they have the confidence to put those details in there and let you just inductively you know, arrive at the conclusion and the story that you get. That was a thing that was extremely cool to me was assembling the story myself, as opposed to having it being, you know, kind of laid out. And, you know, you talked about, you know, the parallels between mist and your profession, you know, for me, that kind of kicked off the spark that, you know, led to me wanting to, you know, think about and speak about games, you know, and ultimately it led me to, you know, Dark Souls, which is extremely good at this kind of storytelling, right? And it's like, oh yeah, like this, the, the you know, this is fun to interpret and fun to, you know, talk about and fun to, you know, to a certain extent argue about to try and arrive at the truth of what they were trying to say. Uh, by giving you these incomplete pieces with a bunch of space in between, 
and you know and and, and connecting them uh and that ultimately turned into bonfireside chat uh you know the, the 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 podcast that i do about dark souls and i can trace that directly to you know mist and figuring out that this was a way that you could tell stories yeah you the dark Souls series from from uh which includes like maybe modern wizards would certainly be aware of elden ring because that's their new big yes uh big game um you can sort of, as you try and piece together the stories of those games, which again is there's a lot of archaeology to that. There's a lot of reading notes, uh, or in the in the case of those games, item descriptions that tell you about the different factions and people in the world. Mm-hmm. You can feel a little bit like Charlie Day in front of the court board, <laughs> um, you know, with uh, the yarn everywhere and 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 stuff. The the beautiful mind uh, landscape of trying to put together all of these disparate things. Mm-hmm. But that does go back to Mist, and it's like, you know, yeah, we're, you're going to walk into a room that was Cirrus's or Akinar's uh, little warren within these ages, and it's like, oh, there's a lamp made out of a ribcage. Yes. Something bad happened here. They don't tell you exactly where this ribcage lamp came from, but you don't need to know that. You know, it's a ribcage lamp. <laughs> you know that it came from something horrific. And... That kind of environmental storytelling, you know, is just was really new at the time of Mist. I can't think of anything else that did that. There were movies where you would have to piece together things like that from what's on screen, but then they, the director is still shoving this in front of your face. Yeah, you know, look at this, right? So I think of like say the scene with the space jockey in Alien, right? You you're you're in this space, this H.R. Giger nightmare space, and you're looking at this stuff and. Unfortunately, he gave us Prometheus to explain what all this shit was. <laughs> but at the time, you you look at it and you're like, I don't know what this is. I don't know where it all fits together, but I'm going to try and deduce what I can from this image. And in Mist, you have the freedom to move around a lot more and observe things from different angles. And then, yeah, they, they just kind of give you this little push and say, here, now you go make all of these connections. Mm-hmm. You find the tissue that binds all of these different things. We're telling you together all of these clues. It was very different from all the games of that era, where, where everything was pretty much expositional in nature, uh, where you'd have a cutscene, like you know, a little movie within the game, where someone would, a character would come out and talk, basically turn it into a movie for a minute to deliver information, or you know, again, just a text scrawl would happen. So even like you know, keep going back to the seventh guest, which I think there's a parallel there. That game is story is told through just literally just actors appear on screen as ghosts and scenes play out and you watch that and go, okay, well now I know what happened in this room, Mm -hmm. right? I just saw it happen. And in here it's like, no, no, you're just going to get a look at the room, you know, the aftermath and you're going to figure out what happened in this room or in this age. Yeah. Um, It's a, it's a really interesting way of telling stories. And it's one of the things that like only games can do. The, the, the permission and ability to wander, I think is a huge part of that. Um, you know, Mist is one of those games, you know, where being lost is a key part of, you know, of, of experiencing it, you know, wandering and being receptive to details and trying to, you know, figure out, okay, I missed something. How can I look at this, look at the space in a different way? I think that, you know, interaction is, you know, a key, you know, a, a key ingredient, uh, in that, that makes, you know, this kind of storytelling a little bit, you know, kind of a different animal than your regular show don't tell, uh, kind of thing, right. Which is how, how this effect would be achieved in different media, you know, in books and in, and, and in movies, 
right? I, you know, I, th I think that the, the interaction is a big part of that. And something that I've come to appreciate, especially as the Miss series, uh, you know, kind of matured beyond a relatively basic story about, you know, the treachery of the, the treachery of these two sons in, uh, in the first game, ultimately to being about this family and then about this people, you know, the, the, the Denis and where they lived is that interpreting it requires a certain amount of insight into people, right? Or into, you know, societies. In Riven, you know, you're going through a place where not just a couple of people or a small tribe lived, but, you know, where a whole society lived and understanding, you know, what the sculpture is supposed to mean, what the way the, uh, you know, the island is, you know, how that's put together, what that shows about the values of the people who lived there, what was important to them. You know, uh, a big part of uh, Riven uh, is understanding the way that they count, right? Uh, because you need to, you know, use their uh, numeral system. Uh, and it is not ours. It's not the base 10 that we that we tend to use. You know, it's it, it's beautiful because you show up and the way that you learn that is through a toy that's in a classroom for little kids uh, where the kind of the dictator on this island was, you know, teaching these kids the Denis counting system. And so it's this little uh, almost like hang, hangman type game uh, where where a person is being lowered uh, toward a little mechanical fish that's going to gobble them. And that is not just showing you, uh, you know, okay, what each of these numbers means and how to, uh, you know, assemble them in the, in the symbols that you have, but also showing you and by way of showing these kids uh, what happens to people when they disbehave, they're sacrificed to the giant fish that lives in the center of this island, <laughs> right? Um, and then that goes on and continues. So having a little bit of insight into not just individuals, but uh, you know, societies helps you put this together. And that is not necessarily a skill that a lot of games require you to exercise, Right. Uh, and it, it, it is extremely refreshing to be able to, you know, to use that muscle, um, you know, to figure out the uh, story that is being told on that level in that way. Yeah. I mean, going back to this concept of archaeology, this is not Indiana Jones, you know, swinging over pits of spikes archaeology. This is more akin to like I, I literally have to solve a Rosetta Stone type puzzle within this game. I have to learn, as you said, a new counting system. I remember... When I, when I encounter that in Riven and having to learn this counting system, I was transported back to a unit we had done in school earlier where we had to learn the Mayan system of counting. Mm -hmm. And it's not terribly dissimilar right. from the counting system in Riven. And it was like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. You're, you're really going out of your way to try and let, let me develop a new alphabet. Let me develop this system of exchanging information. And as you said... They're doing it in a way that's also really efficient storytelling because it's not just here's a piece of paper with some symbols on it. Go figure it out that those symbols are presented to you in a context where they are part of conveying to you something about this world and what happened to it. Uh, there's something about the fact that they, they only they have these limited tools. Right. So this is a game where. There's no interactability with the environment in terms of like as, as we sort of said with uh, with Monkey Island or King's Quest, you can't just pick up an item, you can't look at it, you can't re read it, you can't put it in your pocket and combine it with another item later to make something. <laughs> All you can do is really just look and touch. That's it. 
And with those limitations, that means they have to deliver everything you need to know and try to get you to do everything you need to do with that tool set. And it, it means that they have to be very efficient with how they figure out how to uh, uh, transmit that information to you. It's really just brilliant and uh, one of a kind in a way. Like, I mean, there are games that have followed NIST. Um, there's their own game. There's like Abduction, uh, their most recent one, which I've not yet played. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, some of these concepts have survived, but I think the, the, you mentioned the environmental, environmental storytelling in the Dark Souls series, there are games that have sort of taken this ball and, and run with it, or at least it's really influenced uh, a lot of what has come after, even in different genres. Yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned abduction, uh, it, it, you know, in the same genre, you have the witness. I don't think that you get the presentation that you have in the witness, um, without, uh, without mist as a, uh, as, as a touch point. Um, you know, there are any number of, you know, um, uh, other, other games that really, really name check it in a, in a, in a highly specific way outside of the era of just, you know, clones, of them, of, of the missed games. You know, one that I played here recently was, um, oh gosh, Scorn, right? That is a recent uh, survival horror game, first person, you know, you mentioned Giger before in the context of Alien, but they're, uh, you know, uh, it's primarily about this alien world uh, inspired by Giger's artwork and inspired by the uh, fantastic artwork of um, Zdzisław Pekczynski, a Polish painter. Uh, whose work is really good, but um, you know this is a game with no English in it. It does not actually, you know, tell you what any of this is. You are looking at the machines and discerning what their purpose is, and the purpose is almost always something horrifying and grotesque uh, that will, uh, you know, destroy something biological. Uh, you know, make use of its body in a horrifying way. Um, you know, uh, and playing it is very much like playing Mist because you're trying to figure out what these different machines do. Survival horror in general, I think, really started taking cues, uh, you know, specifically in uh, the, the, the Resident Evil, uh, like the early Resident Evil games, uh, which are, you know, explicitly, you know, constructed spaces uh, that were kind of, you know, made by a paranoid in story, made by a paranoid uh, architect um uh or by in the second game by the um uh paranoid police chief in the you know in the station there uh to try and thwart people uh getting around uh you know in a place and you are doing similar you know mechanism uh you know mechanism interpretation kind of stuff silent hill working with very similar ideas almost entirely in symbolic or psychological kind of places you know there is a mechanical aspect to that but you are uh you know figuring out the ways that things are hooked together by the dream logic uh that is kind of uh kind of presented there uh and then obvious obviously we mentioned before you know dark souls demon souls elden ring uh you know uh different different things like that i think that a huge part of miss success is you know yes creating this new space of slow, um, you know, adventure games, uh, but also, you know, saying like, yes, there are people who, you know, 
are willing to put forth the effort to examine this and work their way through it. You know, this is not something that has zero commercial viability. In fact, it could be, you know, incredibly successful. I think that that was a huge part of, you know, game designers being able to trust the player more and more to actually put in the effort to go to get what they wanted out of it. Well, it's it kind of established this idea that a game one viable gameplay mode would be contemplative yes you know that's not a, a state of mind that i think was generally being used i mean there was contemplation in terms of like here solve a puzzle you know like we said there, there was all these adventure games before and, and others kind of coming around at the time but this was really about you know you sit and, you sit and stew in this magical island and you think about this for a while mm-hmm. you're because you're not there, like, there's no way to lose the game. The only way to lose is to just not figure out what you're supposed to do next. Yeah. And you know, to sit there and, and just kind of really absorb everything and and let it... This is the kind of game you would have to put down, you'd walk away from for you know a couple of days, and then suddenly you'd have that eureka moment and know what to do. Um, and the fact that developers figured out, you know, people want this. There is a market for that kind of an experience uh, I, I think opened up a lot of doors. Um, do you have a favorite thing from any of the series that you know, really stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, very little is going to beat the uh, the the counting puzzle in uh, in Riven. Yeah, uh, you, you know, um, I think that um, gosh, like something that really sticks out as uh, you know as a as an amazing. Here's something: uh, the acting in the in the series has never been especially good. Uh, it is very much a, uh, it is very much amateurs doing very bad FMV, you know, in front of a green screen, very overacted. I think as the story uh, went on, they started hiring professionals. They started bringing in people uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to work with it. I do not think that this is, you know, people, it's not a very good game. It's not regarded as the best in the series by, by anybody that I, that, that I have seen it was made by different people, but missed three, I think it's story in particular uh, where you have this guy named Savidro, who, again, his society and his life has been ruined by Sirius and Akinar, and he is seeking revenge on Atrus by kidnapping his kid. Um, following in his footsteps and learning specifically what happened to him, ultimately getting to a number of, uh, you know, endings that could happen with this guy. Um, and, you know, having this pathos built up with this character who has done you know, a terrible thing out of desperation, you know, you can really, you can really screw him over and get an amazing, uh, uh, kind of soliloquy out of him as he, uh, kind of understands that he is trapped just out of reach of, you know, what he has been seeking this entire time. Um, or you can fulfill him and actually, uh, get like, you know, get him there, get him, you know, get, get him what he wants, you know, at the end of it, you know, what he thought was lost, but, uh, ultimately is, uh, is not, um, and, you know, kind of taking and building on, you know, this world that was kind of had this foundation and these terrible performances by actually giving, giving you a really good performance by a professional actor. I, I forget his name and what else he's been in. It's Brad Dourif. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's Brad Dourif, who uh, people would know he's a worm tongue from Lord of the Rings and he's the voice of Chucky for many, many Oh, years. wow. So. Yeah. So 
actual like legit guy right uh to actually like have this enthralling character with this amazing backstory and just this amazing affect make you feel something in a game that has been primarily very cerebral is something very unexpected in what is considered to be a lesser entry in the series uh <laughs> you know uh just like uh yeah and i think that uh it's it's a shame that the that the individual ages in miss 3 are a little bit uninspired because more people, I think, would enjoy that if they could work through the game to, uh, to you know, to get to it, right? Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I, if you would ask me that question, I might have picked that those moments as well. At the end of, of Miss Three, they're really well delivered. There's, of course, the the magical moment in Miss Four that features a weird B side from Peter Gabriel. <laughs> um, but I did play through Miss Four. I will say the one thing I really like about it is that you get to go inside the worlds of the red and blue books where. Cirrus and Akinar were trapped in the first game. I think that's a clever, you know, fun idea to see, like, you know, where were they living for all this time? Um, I, I did like that as a, I can't remember one thing about that game other than the two things I just mentioned. Because um, I played it once years ago, and I, I don't remember anymore. Uh, the original and, and Riven are the ones that stick around with me. Um, but, I mean, it, of course, we would be also remiss, remiss if we did not mention Piss. The, the brilliant parody of the uh, the original game featuring John Goodman as King Mattress, <laughs> uh, and I know you, you, I know you guys have been trying to get that one on the Abject Suffering for a while. If you can get us a run, I watched a little of a playthrough of it um, in preparation for this, and like, yikes! Um, <laughs> you don't see many parody video games, really. No. Um, and I I'd certainly I don't want to. I'm not going to minimize what Weird Al does. Go back to the episode where uh, of this podcast where you can hear me uh, barely contain myself when I got to interview him. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the energy required to parody a song, which is, you know, writes a new lyrics, gets a musician and record something. The barrier to entry is much lower than to code an entire game experience. It's, you know, the number of hours you got to put in to do that. So the fact that people thought it was worth <laughs> that level of investment to create pissed is really something. Yeah. Like, pissed is really muddled conceptually. <laughs> Because you can't tell if it's making fun of Mist itself, which would be a way to go, or making fun of its popularity, you know, because like the, the, the idea is you're, you know, you're going to Mist, but because this has been such a, you know, a, a cultural force, everybody has been going there as a, as a tourist destination and it's, and it's wrecked. Like everything, it's covered with graffiti. It looks like the day fresh. after Woodstock. Yeah. 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 And so like, that's where they're getting all this crass. I'm sure the humor in it has aged superbly. <laughs> uh, yeah. The one thing I thought was really annoying about it, just watching a little of it is that, you know, in mist, when you pull up a, a note or you read a book, it, it's just the text. It's silent in the parody. Every piece of paper you pick up, some dumb voice ugh. pops in and starts reading it to you. Yo, Iggy. This place is so wrong, it's cool. It is max trashed, which is a statement from our generation, or something. Why don't you blow your folks' house and meet me here? Sean. P.S. Get a tetanus shot first. So not only is it reading it to you, which is unnecessary, because I got eyes, but yeah, it, it, the voice of the person reading it is just like, I don't know if he's trying to sound dumber than he is. I don't want to make fun of someone who just sort of sounds just dumb because that's their voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I have no, uh, leg to stand on for myself for that, but it's, it's very, it's like, 
I'm reading a note to you. Like it's almost Homer. Oh God. Um, it's really, really awful. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a uh, w- weird decisions all around, you know, kind of build, 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 building up to that. Uh, also not really a, like a game, like, like it very much is in the, uh, you know, just, it's, like, it's it's almost like a website. You just go through and click on stuff, and when you see that when you've seen the content, it that that's it. There are not like puzzles built into it. It's just go and see our jokes, and then you're done. Yeah, it's a, it's a joke delivery system for not great jokes, um, but it does have John Goodman like in a hot tub uh, at the end of it talking to you, which you know, of course, you pay money to see that. <laughs> and uh... ah, that's much better. You know, it's very stressful being the king of pain. No, the king of the game. Yes, I am the king of the game. And I have many secrets. For instance, I could show you a whole other side of Pissed Island that you've never experienced. Yes, no. Yes, you haven't. And you won't, because I'm saving it for the sequel. Aren't hot tubs wonderful? And uh, he does sing uh, a song. I think it might be over the credits. I don't know if you watch him sing it mm-hmm. but there is a song uh which i will have to throw in at the end of this episode somewhere a clip of that Cole, anything else you want to kind of say to kind of round out our d- discussion in this in terms of i think it's it's lasting impact i mean in terms of its lasting impact i mean it's pretty undeniable right uh i just uh would kind of entreat people like if your familiarity with mist is from you know is, is from the first game you know maybe i'm saying this as somebody who just really really loves lore you know, like this is not going to be applicable, but like, you know, those later games do have cool story moments, you know, in them. And I want to put in, I kind of want to put in a good word for the, 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 the books. You can get all three of them, you know, just like, you know, really cheap as like a Kindle book even, um, you know, to kind of learn more about this, uh, learn, learn more, learn more about the society and stuff like that is, you know, like come be a nerd with me. More people need to know this stuff. I need to have more people to talk about talk about this stuff with. uh especially the third one uh is uh is 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 very good because you know all of them ultimately concern itself concern themselves with like the ethics of the you know the the denis and whether or not their uh you know whether or not their society should have fallen you know uh just as this uh group of weirdos who uh by virtue of practicing world creation have become completely detached with what humanity actually uh entails uh that is something that i think uh not you know not a lot of people kind of you know know or appreciate about it and it, you know there is meat there if you are uh meet there uh to meet to the series that you can enjoy if you go looking for it yeah and i would suggest to anyone who has is intrigued by anything we've talked about today go pick up mist and riven um, they're, they're very inexpensive. I'm sure you can get them for like three bucks on the, the, the Apple, uh, I, I store, uh, on your phone. Uh, it's not the ideal way to play it on your phone, but you can find it in other places, mm-hmm. Gog and Steam and everywhere else. It's, it's, it'll be around forever. Um, because I think of all the things we talked about, it really just, it, it is an experiential game, uh, that allows you to kind of really sit back and explore a space and feel like you're, you know, you've stepped through the wardrobe into Narnia it's very much that feeling of, of going to a new fantastical world and getting to just uh, walk around mm-hmm. and, and see what, what it's like. 
So I uh, thank you so much again, Cole, for coming on. Um, do you want to tell people about where they can find you and your good work? Yeah. Um, everything we do can be found over at duckfeed.tv. We have a number of shows that you laid out at the start. Uh, if you're interested in just kind of general video game talk, um, uh, you know, we go into way more detail about, uh, you know, multiple games a month uh, on the show. Watch out for fireballs. Um, if you're kind of interested in, you know, assembling these uh, the, these stories that are told indirectly through the environments, we have the series that is all about the Dark Souls games. Uh, we're working through Elden Ring right now on uh, Bonfire Side Chat. Um, but yeah, everything is over there. And, uh, and, you know, assuming Twitter is still around, you can find me on Twitter at Cole Ross. That's K-O-L-E-R-O-S-S. Uh, and I do announcements about uh, new stuff there. And uh, to do a little admin on our side, if you, if you like the show, do all of the things uh, that you do when you like podcasts. You've heard one before. Um, but we are on Twitter, as long as it is uh, not burned to the ground, at uh, Nostalgium Pod. That's where you can find us there. We're also on Instagram. Uh, we've got some really cool stuff coming up for the new year. We're going from the Denis to Paul Dini because we're talking about Batman the Animated Series uh, on our next show. And I believe after that, we've got D2, the Mighty Ducks, lined up. Uh, we've got some good guests for those shows. I'm really excited about it. Cole, thank you so much again for doing this. It's really a, a treat to talk to you as always. And uh, yeah, until uh, next time, uh, that's one more entry in the Nostalgium Arcanum. I'm sitting here in my living room and I just can't seem to shake the glue. Yes. Man, I just can't change my ugly mood. Yes, I am one unhappy dude. I'm pissed. But no one up there looks like me. Makes me pissed. I change the channel, switch the switch, get the same old stupid pitch. Switch the channel. I'm pissed. A bunch of oily superstars trying to sell me shoes and cars. Whoa, I'm pissed.